the things we're going to talk about are things that are practical. Uh, again, they might not all apply to your specific walk because these may not be concerns you have, uh, but I think they're good for us to know in terms of dealing with other people and trying to help them also see the truth of God's word lived out before them in our lives. So uh, the first time what I say to you is not a profound statement. It's something we've learned last time, but you know this without having to look in the word of God. Life is full of difficulties. That is just automatic. You know that. Uh, they vary in, intensity, in, vary in intensity. They vary in duration. But every person in this room has been through a difficulty. And if you haven't, you're going to go through one before too long. And more than likely, you're going to go through another one, even if you've been through one. Uh, life just has that a way about it of providing those opportunities for difficulty for us. Now, what I think is God didn't intend us to get focused there. And I feel like a lot of folks, believers, even believers, get sort of focused on those difficult times. Those things should not define us. We shouldn't see ourselves as somebody going through a difficulty. That's just part of what life deals to us, what God allows in our lives. I know they can be defining when you're going through them. Uh, and they're difficult to ignore when you're going through them. But what we find in Scripture, I think, is very clear. Every place where difficulties are addressed in the Word of God, they're to direct our attention toward Him. Every time. That's what God always intends for us to do with those things. As we go through the book of Job on Sunday morning, you're going to see Job talks about his affliction. But he also talks about the God who's with him in spite of the affliction. And at the end of that uh, whole trial, uh, he meets God in a way like he never knew him before. So uh, even though you go through it, even though at the moment it defines you in a sense, uh, the idea is to point us to God through all of that. So be very careful that, that what you're going through does not become the focus of your attention to the point where it becomes all-consuming to you. Uh, so we school ourselves in the upward view. No matter what happens in your life, you, are, you train yourself to look up and see God in it and see his hand in it and see his purpose in it in spite of the difficulty that might come. And we need to school ourselves in that way so that becomes our natural tendency because the flesh looks around, uh, the soul and the spirit need to look up. Now, uh, James has a great deal of concern about how we talk. And we've seen that many times throughout this study. A God, uh, James has a concern about the words that we use. And he's going to talk about that again tonight. We're going to begin in verse 12 and see one more example of that. Uh, in verse 12, James says, uh, chapter 5, he says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, uh, neither by any, uh, any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay nay, let, lest ye fall into condemnation. So what he says is this, uh, no matter what you go through, no matter what concern you have, above all things, uh, swear not. Now I want to give you what Jesus Christ said about this in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 34, here's what he says. In fact, I'm going to have you turn there. Go to Matthew chapter 5. It would be better for you to see this. We'll look at the doctrinal idea that James is presenting to us first. And then we'll look at some practical ideas from this verse as well. But let's look at the doctrinal side of this thing first. Uh, Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verse 34. Matthew chapter 5, verse 34. He says, But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, Neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Now you're aware that Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7 are all part of the Lord's great, uh, Sermon on the Mount. What that really is, is, is his declaration of the constitution for the Jews during the tribulation and also during the millennium. If they want to know how to live during that time, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 gives them the ideas on how to live during that time. So what he says there, in that time of the tribulation, a person is going to be held responsible for the oaths that they speak. And the idea is that if a person speaks something, or swears by something, or swears to do something, they're now under the oath to do that thing. They are required to do it. 
And if they don't do what they have sworn to do, that is sin to them. I'll go back to Ezekiel chapter 17. I'll give you an example of this from the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter, chapter 17. And when you get there, we're going to look at verse uh, 18. Ezekiel chapter 17. Uh, if you look at verse 13 of Ezekiel chapter 17, you'll notice that somebody takes an oath towards something. They've, 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 they've spoken an oath. And then they don't fall through on the oath they spoke. So verse 18 addresses the fact they've taken this oath and not done what they uh, swore to do. Look at chapter 17 of Ezekiel, verse 18. It says, Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, when, lo, he had given his hand, and hath done all these things, he shall not escape. He says he made the oath, he committed himself to it, and then he didn't do it. Therefore, he says, Thus saith the Lord, As I live, surely mine oath that he hath despised, and my covenant that he hath broken, even it will I, it will I recompense upon his own head. Notice he says that once that fellow makes that oath, it is now a covenant between him and God. That is now a sworn statement between him and the Lord, and the Lord holds him to that. It doesn't matter what the oath is. Once that thing is spoken, a person is held to it, and God will place judgment upon the person for not following through on what they swore to do. So Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 4. He says, When thou vowest a vow to God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools, Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than thou shouldst vow and not pay. Now again, in the tribulation time, if a person has no plans on following through what they swore to, they shouldn't swear to it to begin with. Because in the tribulation, every behavior is held against that person because works is part of their salvation. And if they say something and don't do it, that is a sin of omission, and that sin will take them to hell unless they repent of that. Now again, that's tribulation time. That's not true for us as believers today. That's not the case. We can say whatever we want to say and still go to heaven. Now, I'm not suggesting you do that. I'm simply saying we can say whatever we want because those words are not held against us because the blood covers all those sins. But look at verse 12 again. Because here's the, the uh, spiritual application to that. Uh, look at the last part of it. He says, don't, by, don't swear by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest you fall into temptation. Now, we've covered this many times. I'm not going to go into it in depth again tonight. I just want to say it. Use your words sparingly is what he's saying there. Use your words sparingly. Don't say more than you need to say. If yea is enough, say yea and be done with it. If nay is enough, say nay and let it go with that. Don't use any more words that are necessary. And Solomon tells us why that is. Here's a verse I think we really need to pay attention to. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 19. He says, in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. What he says is, the more you talk, the more chance there is you're going to sin with your words. So he says, yet let your yea be yea and your nay nay. Keep your words to a minimum. Here's what he said, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 7. He says, for in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou God. He says, in the multitude of words, in, rather in many words, there are diverse vanities. Vanity is a word in scripture that means emptiness or nothing. The more words we speak, the more emptiness there is and what we're, chance there is emptiness in what we're saying. And when you provide emptiness, the flesh will take over. The flesh loves to fill empty places. <laughs> so if I speak a lot and I create this empty void of what I'm saying, the flesh is going to grab onto that thing and glorify itself and bring no glory to God as a result. Now, if you want an example of this, and I'm not telling you to do this, I'm just saying if you want an example of this, go to any social media outlet. <laughs> Find any social media platform you want to and just look at what goes on on those, on those, on those platforms. 
Now, what you'll see is all sorts of people saying all sorts of things. Uh, if you're part of social media, uh, the next time you're there, uh, evaluate how much of what is said there is really something that needs to be said. You're going to find probably 95% of that stuff doesn't need to be said at all. Uh, how much of this, what is said on social media really needs to be, has any real value whatsoever? Folks go on and on about some personal experience or some other person in their life or some event they've gone through. And when you see all that stuff, ask yourself, do I really need to know this? Does anybody else really need to know this? Does anybody need what's being said here? Is this helpful or harmful to the cause of Christ? And what I have found, especially with social media, believers have taken that social media and used it to attack other believers. And as a result, those words that come out are empty words, and the flesh finds a place to locate there and begins to use that uh, to tear down the body of Christ and to bring no glory to the Lord. 95% of the time, what you read on there is worthless, pretty much. It's just emptiness. So what James says here, those words, I think, for all of us need to be heeded in this day, maybe more than ever. Say what you need to say. Say what needs to be said, and don't say any more. Stop yourself there. And before you speak, and I'm speaking to myself as well now, before we speak, we need to make sure that God's Spirit is giving us permission to say what we're saying. I think a lot of conversation would stop if we asked the Lord to tell us what to say before we said it. <laughs> I think he'd say, Sabaka, don't say that. Just, just stop right there. And I can sometimes know that after the fact, but I need the Holy Spirit to tell me that before the fact, <laughs> so I don't say it to begin with. Now, look at the verse again. Because, again, it says, but above all things, my brethren, swear not. Now, I realize that he's talking there specifically of taking an oath. But in our frame of reference, in our day and time, that word swearing has another connotation to it as well. Now, I'm going to assume tonight that none of you have a problem with swearing. <laughs> I'm going to make that assumption. Most folks who come to church on a Thursday night are, are keeping their flesh pretty well under control for the most part. But I believe this is a good thing for us to be reminded about and also if you're working in an area where there's a lot of this going on, I'm going to give you some ammunition tonight to use it for, for those situations and help folks see uh, the, the uh, lack of necessity in what they're saying and the words they're using. Uh, swearing refers to vulgar or profane language. It also talk, it refers to language that blasphemes or promotes the flesh or is some way inappropriate. Now, what you have seen, what I've seen over the past 20 or 30 years is there's a rise of swearing around us in general. The language has deteriorated a lot, and I believe television and movies have had a lot to do with that. I think folks have watched that stuff long enough where they begin to believe that's the way people talk, and they begin to talk the same way. They have a difficult time defining what swearing actually is. Even some believers have a hard time with that. Uh, they have so inundated themselves with foul language that they can't tell the difference between what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. So again, we've seen this overall degeneration of the language, and that is, includes what comes out of even believers' mouths. And I've told you this before. I work with a lot of believers where I'm at in my counseling. And a lot of those folks come in and use language. I wouldn't know they were Christians if they hadn't told me, if I based it on what, how they, with the language they use. And they see no problem with it whatsoever, apparently. They're not having any issue with, at all with the language they're using. So swearing is any word that includes an oath or minimizes a biblical reality, an exclamation that uses God or Jesus' name as a part of it, or what Paul calls filthy communication. Any communication, any words we use that involve the flesh or fleshly activity. Now look at what James says. With that connotation, with that thought in mind, with that context, he says, but above all things, my brethren, swear not. Above every other sin, he says, don't swear. I find that to be very, very interesting. Uh, if that's the case, we better figure out what swearing is and what it isn't. 
because he says, above all things, don't swear. Now, I've had believers say to me, well, it's just words. I've had believers say to me, well, words don't mean anything. I've had believers say to me, well, who decides what's swearing and what isn't? Now, what I'm convinced of, and you probably have had this experience as well, I am convinced that most, almost everybody knows what's appropriate language and what is not. I think they really know. And I say that because, and you've probably had this experience, when somebody finds out I'm a Christian, and it's interesting, even more so when they find out that I'm a pastor, their language changes. <laughs> they stop saying certain words. They're not used anymore. And they catch themselves, or they apologize if one slips out. I had a lady just last week say a word in, in front of me, and then go, oops, and, and like that, like she realized what she had said. Now, she has no problem with that word, otherwise it wouldn't have slipped out. But because I was in her presence, she realized that was not an appropriate word. She knew that before she saw me. Uh, she just uses those words because that's what she does. It's, but always by my opinion, and, and this will not offend you because I'm sure this doesn't apply to you. I've always thought that swearing just makes a person look stupid. <laughs> that's my opinion. I think it just shows me that this person has no, doesn't have the intelligence to find words that aren't offensive. They become very sloppy in their language. It just makes them look dumb as far as I'm concerned. That's just me. Here's what James says in regards to swearing and using filthy language. He says, above all, don't do it. Don't do it. Why would he say that? Let me give you some reasons why I think that's the case. First of all, swearing is a sin because it dishonors God. It dishonors God. God's name is holy. Uh, God himself honors his own name. Uh, using his name as an oath shows complete disrespect for who he is. And so if you know somebody, have in contact with somebody who uses God's name, you might point that out to them. Every time they use his name, they are disrespecting God by doing that. Number two, here's an interesting thought. It is the sin with the least amount of temptation driving it. And by that I mean there's no end game to it. There's no benefit to it. There's no final result to it. It's just using language that is inappropriate, and that's all it is. There's no fleshly payoff to it at all. I'm not justifying any sin, folks. You realize what I'm saying. But there are certain sins that have a payoff to them. There's some kind of uh, positive result, positive in the sense that the sin pays off. Uh, using uh, foul language has no payoff whatsoever. The only thing that a, a person who swears, the only thing it does is show how ignorant they are and how little you, uh, uh, control they have over the words they use. The only thing that causes a person to use foul language is their desire to do it or their lack of desire to stop doing it. Nothing else drives it, and there's no benefit produced from it. Even in a fleshly sense, nothing good comes from it. And whether it's intended or not, swearing and especially using God's name as an oath puts a person at odds with God. Hey, listen to this verse, Psalm 139.20. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, David says, thine enemies take thy name in vain. So again, next time you hear somebody using a, a God's name in vain, let them know they have become an enemy of God by doing that. Because only his enemies use those words. Believer or unbeliever, they place themselves in opposition to God by using that. I find that to be very, very interesting. And that's the case whether the person intends to be the enemy of God or not. Using that language puts them in that category. Number three, anything that we do becomes a habit. If you do it repeatedly, it becomes a habit. And once a person begins to use inappropriate language and does it repeatedly, it sets up a pattern of behavior that is very difficult to break. And I have known people, and I'm sure you do again as well, who this language just flows out of them. It's just how they talk. Uh, there's no regard for it. They see nothing wrong with it. When you point it out to them, they're not even aware they said it. 
Uh, it just happens so easily. Why is that? They have reinforced that thing so often and so long, it's just natural how, what they do. It's just the natural way they talk. Uh, putting a stop to it becomes a great challenge because of the fact they've done it so much and, and reinforced it so much. Number four, uh, using God's name in an oath minimizes the power of God. What that does is it brings God down to your level. If you use him in your language, not you, if a person uses him, a God, in their language, it drops him to their level. It brings an omnipotent God down to their level with no more power or ability than they have. Now, what I find interesting about this is people will use God's name in vain, and then when they're in trouble, they call upon God to help them. <laughs> well, they've already dropped him down to their level. How could he help them? Uh, they've taken the power out of him by doing that. It's, it's contradictory to use his name in vain, and then when problems come, call out to him. It doesn't make any sense. They've minimized him to the point where he couldn't help them if, they, if he wanted to, although, of course, we understand he could. Uh, so if God is reduced to, to a common oath, what power could he possibly have when a problem arises? Now, number five, and this is something I think we always need to be aware of. Whether we like it or not, people judge us by what comes out of our mouths. They're going to judge us by how we speak. And I only need to look to Peter to see that as an example, see him as the example of that. I see Peter sitting around that fire, and he starts talking. And that girl comes up to him and says, you followed him, didn't you? And, you know, in my mind's eye, Peter says, well, how do you know that? And she's like, I can tell by the way you talk. You talk different. <laughs> so what did Peter do? He didn't want people to know that he followed him, Jesus, because he's afraid he'd get caught into the same thing Jesus was in. So what's he do? He starts to curse and swear. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> when he doesn't want them to know that he's a follower of Jesus Christ, he begins to curse and swear. You see, they knew who he was by his speech, and so he changed his speech to change their opinion of him, throw them off track so they wouldn't think that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. People will judge us as to whether or not we are followers of Jesus Christ, not or not, by the words that we use. If we use filthy language, if we use God's name as an oath, if our language minimizes God in any way, we are going to harm our testimony, whether we think we will or not. It's going to drop our testimony. And we can de debate that all we want to, and I'm sure we wouldn't hear, but the rule of human behavior is this. Man looks on the outward appearance. That's as true as the fact that God looks on the heart. <laughs> Man watches the outward appearance. That's all they have to use to judge you for. And so they're going to watch what we do and watch what we say. And our speech is either going to indicate we are followers of Jesus Christ or it's going to throw people off track as to who it is that we do follow. So all that said, uh, to say this, we need to guard our mouths and guard our tongues. And I realize that things slip out from time to time. I'm not justifying that. What I'm saying to you is we need to control that so people don't see that in us. And by seeing that in us, reduce our, their belief and their picture of who Jesus Christ is and whether or not we follow him. Uh, go to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Here's another law of scripture. Uh, filth from the mouth has its source in filth in the heart. That's where that, those words come from. A filthy mouth comes from a filthy heart. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 34. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. What a person says comes from what a person is. 
If there is filth or blasphemy in their mouths, it's because they've harbored filth or blasphemy in their hearts. And those who use those words, even believers, might choose to debate that. But let's just be clear. That's what Jesus Christ said. Jesus Christ says what's in your heart is going to come up through your mouth. And he even says, how can you fellas speak good things when you have a filthy heart? He says it's not possible to do that. So the only way to really clear up somebody's language is to get a heart changed. Either they need to trust Jesus Christ as Savior and have him change their heart, or as believers, they need to commit their heart fully to him. Because if the language is off, the heart is off. And if they want to fix the language, you fix the heart. That's what Jesus Christ says. Otherwise, the filth in the heart becomes the filth in the language that is used, and that's all there is. That's the bottom line to it. Nothing more needs to be said. Uh, You know the verse. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. That verse says, if a person uses God's name in vain, God will not hold him guiltless. God will condemn them for that, and God will judge them for that. God sees that person as guilty of breaking the law. Now, here's what Jesus, uh, uh, Matt, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, uh, if we read on in verse 37. He says, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. I don't know how the judgment's going to go. I can't tell you how that's all going to go. All I can tell you is that according to those two verses I just read to you, if a person chooses to use God's name flippantly or in an oath, they're going to hear about it again someday. And I say that because God honors his name. And if somebody chooses not to honor his name, God's going to hold them accountable for that. They will not be held guiltless. And Jesus Christ says, in that day, your own words are going to condemn you. Again, I don't know how this is all going to go, but somehow or another, when that person stands before the judgment, they're going to hear what they said. (laughs) And God's going to say, is that your voice? And are those your words? And of course they are. And then God said, you're condemned yourself by what you chose to say. Now, for a believer at the judgment, it will not condemn them to hell. But they'll not receive a full reward as a result because God will hold that against them and detract from their rewards as a result. So James says, swear not. Above all things, my brethren, swear not. I think that's a good thing for us to keep aware of and also a great thing to let other people know about. Let them know that those words they're using aren't just words. God holds them very much accountable for those things. Now, verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye might be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, this again is doctrine in, the, in these verses, doctrine that has been forced into the church age by uh, commentators and so forth. And so they'll take their belief about illness and how to cure illness from this passage. Now, in every other place we find, just like we have looked all the way through this book, there are two ways to apply these verses, doctrinally and also practically. Uh, you cannot find church doctrine in those words. We can find some practical application. Let's again look at the doctrine first. Uh, You see, that doctrine cannot be church-age doctrine. Why do I say that? I say that because, again, if we compare those words to the words of what Paul says, they don't match up. 
Uh, Paul had an affliction in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He had a physical issue. He prayed about that thing three times and found no relief. Paul didn't do any of what James talks about here. We have no record of him going through any of that process to try and get that illness taken care of. He didn't follow any of those guidelines. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says, Erastus abode at Corinth, and Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Here is one of Paul's best friends, and he leaves him in that town sick. Well, if what James says here uh, heals the sick, why wasn't Trophimus healed? Why didn't Paul take them through that process and find that healing? The reason he didn't was because doctrinally this does not apply to the church age. And I know that because as you read through that, what you find is the illness being talked about here is connected to sin. These people are sick because they sin. In the Old Testament and also in the New Testament before, before the cross, a person who was living right didn't have the illnesses that other people had. Because again, uh, God says, I won't put those illnesses on you if you choose to live right. He told them after they left Egypt, uh, you won't have all these diseases if you follow me. So in the Old Testament and before the cross in the New Testament, being well and living right were connected to each other. And that's going to be true in the tribulation as well. So this procedure is given to those believers who are under the law, living through the tribulation, who have allowed sin into their lives that has caused them illness. And James has given them the, the prescription on how they can get, take that, get that, have that illness taken care of by following this process. Now, I know there are the faith healers who have read, read this passage and believe they have the power to heal if they follow what James says. Many churches also have taken this as a path to provide healing to the people that are in that church. What they do is they take part of those verses out and apply just a part of it and leave the rest behind. And, of course, you know you can't do that. You have to take it all as it is or leave it all behind. You can't take part and leave part back. So before we make practical application, here's the actual process James talks about here in gaining healing. Here's what James says. Without reading anything into it, here's what he says. The elders of the church are to go to that rather are the ones who do the healing. Notice again, it's not a faith healer. The elders of the church are the ones who participate in the healing. Number two, notice, the person who is sick does not go to the elders. They come to him. So it doesn't happen in the church. He doesn't come to the church to find healing. The elders go to where he is, and that's where they get the healing. Number three, the elders bring a bottle of olive oil with them to participate in this healing. Number four, they anoint that person with that oil in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. However, before that's done, according to verse 16, the elders confess their faults to each other so that they're able to provide healing for that sick person. They've got to be free from any fault themselves before they can be of any benefit to the one who is sick. And this is all done in the presence of that one who is ill. And the person who is ill is brought to health, not by his or her own prayers, but rather by the faith and the prayers of the elders. That person's healing is dependent upon the faith and the prayer of somebody else. Now, it's not difficult to see the contradictions there when you think about children of God in this age. Uh, none of that applies to us. Uh, there are practical principles there, but the process itself does not apply. God honors the prayers of other people for us. That's why we come here and have a prayer time. Uh, we do that to pray for other people. But that's not required for us to get what we need from the Lord. I can pray about things myself, and God will answer my prayer, whether anybody else is praying for me or not. That is not the scene that, that uh, James presents here. That's not what he's talking about. Also notice, if you would, that healing is guaranteed. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. 
he gets his healing by going through this process. So either Paul was unaware of this process, God never told him about it, or he had done something wrong because neither he nor Trophimus ever received the healing that, they were, that uh, James promises here. But the fact is there was no healing because this procedure applies not to the time of the church, but to the time of the tribulation, an entire different age. And therefore, none of that applies doctrinally to our time. I have never seen any faith healer or any charismatic church follow that process completely. They claim that to be the way to find healing, but I've never seen them go as, I just, as we just went through it and go through those steps the way James tells them to. They pull certain things out. They do certain things. They want to do the spectacular. They want somebody to notice what they've done. They want to be the focus. And so they pull certain parts out and make themselves the focus rather than what James talks about here. Now, all that said, I want to look at some practical truth from this before we close tonight. Look at verse 13 again. Is any among you afflicted? If you have any affliction whatsoever, what should you do? It says, let him pray. The first thing a person does with any affliction is pray. The two words we need to burn into our brains, folks, no matter what we face, pray first. Before you do anything else, pray. Don't go to anybody else. Don't try to find some other answer. The first thing we do is we pray, no matter what the affliction is, no matter what the difficulty is, pray first. We are so commonly trying to find other ways around things instead of just doing what God has told us to do. Don't do anything else first. Pray. And if the healing doesn't come or the resolution doesn't come, then we pray that God would give us the grace that we need to get through it. So the first thing we see is, if you're afflicted, pray. Then look at what it says. Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. That's very interesting to me. That's an interesting thing to throw in there. If you're merry, if you're happy, if you had joy, you're to sing psalms. Now, what is that all about? I mean, why does James throw that in there? seems kind of an odd thing, doesn't it? Well, think about this. If somebody in the world is feeling happy about something, what do they do? Well, uh, they might point to some good circumstance, some you know, benefit they've received. Maybe they played the lottery you know, and won a bunch of money, so they're going to say that's why they're happy. They'll claim some outside circumstance uh, for their happiness. Or they might go to get a few drinks at the bar and celebrate their happiness that way. Or they give credit, as I've heard many people do, uh, to good karma or to the universe for favoring them in some way. Whatever it is, they give credit to somewhere else when that a good time happens to them, when that good thing happens. What should a believer do? Well, they shouldn't uh, congratulate the circumstances, and they shouldn't go to the bar and have a few drinks, and they shouldn't appraise karma or the universe for what happened. They're to sing psalms. They're to sing psalms. When a believer is doing well, they sing psalms. Why? To let the entire world know the source of their happiness. That it's not about the circumstances, it's not about a celebration, it's not about karma or the universe, it's about the fact that God has benefited them, and that's why they're happy. When life is going well, they can have joy no matter what's going on. In spite of the circumstances, there's joy. That psalm that they sing, that psalm that we sing, draws attention to the one who provides all good things for us. It lets everybody know just how good God is. It lets the whole world know that the source of good things is God. All good things, James told us, come from above. It lets the entire world around us know that our joy comes from a supernatural source, God himself. I want to tell you something, and this is just Sabaka's confession time. 
Nothing is more frustrating to me than a sour Christian. <laughs> and, and over the years, I've been in church all my life. I've met quite a few of those folks. I have met Christians who can find a bad thing no matter what's going on. They can be the best thing happening and they find some negative thing about it, some sour thing to focus on. I've met Christians who, who always have to let you know how difficult life is, as though somehow we're not aware of that. But they need to focus there. And I'm going to put my disclaimer on this. I know the struggles are real. I know difficulties come. I know all that. Let me ask you something, folks. When's the last time somebody heard a psalm from you? <laughs> When's the last time somebody heard you say something like this? Uh, praise you, the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the firmament of his power. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with sound of the trumpet. Praise him with psaltery and harp. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise him upon loud cymbals. Praise him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath, breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Psalm 150. <laughs> When's the last time somebody heard that from us? That's what they're supposed to hear from us. If life is going well, or even if life is not going all that well, they need to hear you say, Praise ye the Lord. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. What a testimony that would be. <laughs> What a difference that would be to hear that coming from us instead of hearing what normally comes from the mouths of those who are going through difficult times. We would be pointing everybody to the real source of our joy and also because struggles are real, we would be showing them in spite of difficult times, in spite of troubles, a believer in Jesus Christ still has joy and can still be married and can still point to God as a source for all that. That's what we need to be doing, folks, especially in this day and age when life seems so dark. We need to be lights in this darkness and say, you know what? Praise you, the Lord. <laughs> Praise you, the Lord. Listen to Psalm 30. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but Psalm 30, verse 4 says this. It says, sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Now, I'm going to read that first part to you again. Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his. Are you a saint of his? Then you have a command to sing. <laughs> because that verse says, Sing unto the Lord, O ye saints of his. You are commanded to sing. It is commanded to you and I, to, as, as God's saints, to sing. So whether you have a great voice or a not so great voice, we are commanded to sing. Now, I've talked to folks. You have as well. And they will say to you, I'm just not comfortable singing. I have a terrible voice. Okay, here's what Psalm 107 verse 2 says. It says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Okay, so if you can't sing, use words instead. Don't use melody if the melody's off key. If you can't sing, the Bible says, use words and use your words to say something good about the Lord. Talk about God's goodness through your words. Express your joy in words. Well, now somebody else says, I'm not good at using words. My tongue gets all tied up. I can't think of what to say, so my words don't work. Well, here's what the Bible says in Psalm 98 and verse 4. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. I don't sing well. I don't speak well. Can you make a noise? <laughs> Can you make a noise? Can you say hallelujah? Can you say yippee? Can you say yabba-dabba-doo? <laughs> Can you say some kind of a noise that lets people know that you're joyful and express that joy? If you've got a voice and you've got a tongue, you can make a noise at the very least. The point is this, our joy and our merriment should not be hidden. We shouldn't hide that stuff. We should not hide the fact that we know God and that God is the one who provides for us everything that we have. 
Uh, you're going to have events in your life, as we all will, as I started the, this message out, there's going to be difficulties. There's going to be events in your life that are going to be uh, cause trouble for you. But there's also going to be events in your life that bring you joy. And every time that happens, folks, I need to say to myself, this is from God. This is from him. No matter what it is, I didn't create any of that joy. The good time did not come because of my work or because I manipulated things to make them happen a certain way. I've got joy because God provided that for me. The source of all that joy is God. And therefore, I sing a psalm or I say a psalm or I make a noise. <laughs> but one way or another, I let people know that God is the source of every good thing that I have. And I will say something else to you. And again, easier to say in the good times than it is in the bad times. But I will say this anyway. Even when we are struggling, we have reason to be merry. Even when there are difficulties, we still have joy. Because regardless of what else is going on in your life, folks, you're saved on your way to heaven. You have joy. There's joy in that. Even though this life may be difficult, uh, find the joy in spite of the difficulty. Uh, I see too many folks who find the difficulty in spite of the joy. And they live their lives with this dark cloud over their heads and always looking down and always feeling the, the pressure of life. Don't live that way as a believer in Jesus Christ. You don't have to live that way. <laughs> Instead, no matter what the difficulty, raise your head and see him through it and allow him to uh, provide that joy to you in spite of whatever difficulty you're going through. Not because of karma, not because of the universe, not because of some chemical inducement, not at all. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I have joy instilled in me. The moment I got saved, there it was, planted inside me. And my duty is to glorify God and let everybody know where my joy comes from, that it comes from him. And if you'll do that, they're going to see a difference in you. And again, we've talked about this many, many times. That's what your world needs to see. They need to see something different. And if you'll do that, you'll be different. <laughs> and they'll ask you what's going on with you. How can you be so happy with all this going on? What a great opportunity to tell them about the joy that's found in Jesus Christ. All right, let's stand.